you're trying to make sure that while you're in the studio arting, which I also think is scholarship, you know, art is, is just a different language. And so, you know, you're scholaring, I'm scholaring. My main job is to be a, a megaphone for the work that you do to explain it to people, to make it accessible to people so that they see it in, and make connections to other things that are significant in their lives. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise Podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. It takes all type of people to make this art world go round. It's people like me and maybe you that are in the studio creating and producing the visual, the audio, the performances. Then there are the curators, writers, historians that help tell the story provide the context like today's guest tk smith writer for art in america art papers so many more and he curates shows right now he's in school pursuing his phd at the university of delaware i love getting these scholars and thinkers on the show it always leads to great conversation this episode we talk about curating and working in and with institutions to increase the profile of art and artists the mind state of writing an art show review and how much he channels the experience of art into the written word. It's Studio Noise, the voice of black art, bringing you the best in black contemporary art on all levels, from all angles, <laughs> even the scholarship, baby. We still doing it. If you like what you hear, why don't you support the show? Follow us at Studio Noise Podcast on IG. And that's Noise with a Z. Haven't said that in a while. <laughs> Studio Noise with a Z. Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you throw some reviews up. All the reviews let everybody know about the noise. Join the Studio Noise Patreon if you got a few dollars that you can't afford to send to your boy JB. The tiers start at just $5 a month and every bit you give helps us keep this show going. Help us keep building this archive of the best black artists that I could possibly get my hands on. Now do your boy a solid. Go ahead. The last person that you just texted in your phone, you just picked up your phone. I know you just texted somebody. Go ahead and send them this link to this episode right here and tell them. It's the noise, baby. And right after the break, we got the one and only TK Smith talking that good art talk on the noise, baby. Yes. I am Christina Cleveland. I am a social psychologist, a public theologian, and a general spiritual imagination rabble rouser. And you are listening to Studio Noise. Yes, it's your boy Jay Barber back with more Studio Noise, the voice of black art. I had to go get another person that's that's also a voice in black art out there doing his thing. Got curator, writer, cultural historian, TK Smith on the podcast. Welcome to the show, man. Oh, thank you so much, Jamal. Thank you for having me. For sure, man. It, it's very interesting to be able to talk to the scholars and the people out there that's doing like the thinking, you know what I'm saying? When it comes to kind of black art, you know, I'm out here arting, you know what I mean? And even when I sat down and I uh, just got my MFA, even sitting down to just write my little thesis was, you know, like a year long struggle. Like, so I'm always amazed at the people that can put the words together, man, and describe stuff. So uh, happy to have you on the show, man. It's wonderful to be here. 
Yeah. So what, what absolutely. You, and you're right now. You're getting your doctorate, right? Am I right? I am. I am. I'm at the University of Delaware getting a doctorate in what the program is called the history of American civilization. But that's just a fancy way of saying history with some material culture in it. Material culture. What do what do what do you mean by that? What do they mean well, by that when they say it? Yeah, you know, material culture is really my thing. So out of all of the things you could say, you know, TK Smith is I'm a material culturalist, which is a word I made up. And it basically means that I study what makes a thing a thing culturally significant, what makes a thing valuable economically, what makes a thing symbolically political, um, what makes a thing matter, what makes it itself is kind of what I study. Man, that's deep subjects right there, man. I, I got the right, I got the right man on the podcast now. <laughs> talk, talk with us about some stuff. And so you do, man. You do so much stuff, and it's like so many different angles uh, that we can have this conversation about. So I'm, a, I'm gonna break it up into three parts, man. I'm gonna talk about your curating and then your writing, but separately uh, reviews and then articles. So I want to start okay. with, I want to start with your curating. Uh, I saw this. You wrote this, and and I found this uh, great line. He said the goal is not to produce a singular harvest, but to create a structure to ensure a fruitful harvest year after year. And you're talking about art in terms of these relationships you're building, the stuff that you're laying down and laying out for people to pick up later on and continue this interest in art, continue the, the showcase of these people. Is this one? Is, am I close to what, I'm, what you're talking about? Oh my goodness. You you could tell you just got a degree. You just did your research. <laughs> That's a deep cut. <laughs> Definitely a deep cut. Um, that appeared in a short piece I wrote in collaboration with some colleagues for the Studio Museum. And you'll you'll hear a lot of curators say our work is very much like harvesting. It's very much like agricultural work. What we do is so seeds and, you know, depending on the curator you talk to, those seeds are support systems for artists, emotional, economic space, creating space and platforms, promotion, but it's also the seeds of ideas for our, our audiences, our, our communities. And so you're trying to make sure that while you're in the studio arting, which I also think is scholarship, you know, art is, is just a different language. I write with the words that you find in a dictionary you write with the tools and skills of a printmaker. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're scholaring, I'm scholaring. My main job is to be a, a megaphone for the work that you do, to explain it to people, to make it accessible to people so that they see it in, and make connections to other things that are significant in their lives. And so, you know, when I say, you know, the process of what a curator does isn't about the big show, right? It's not about the big retrospective. It's not about um, the big piece that sells at Sotheby's. It's not, it's not about the big flashy things. It's about making sure that there's a record and an archive that is honored long beyond our lifetimes, you know? Um, and as a Black person, you know, specifically, what we do has been a lot of times not recognized in a traditional historical book, monograph, or even with catalogs. Absolutely. But but it's it's even the work of word of mouth, speaking someone's name when they're not in the room, making sure when there's a show that you're bringing up the artists that are significant, making sure that you remind people who taught who what, because those seeds came from someplace. 
sometimes you can show people how things pass through generations and legacies and you know it's it's a it's a it's about a it's a big picture job it's a big picture job and it it bubbles up to the surface when you see an exhibition or you go to a gallery talk but the real work is done in the archives in studios um and at the desk really every day and so how where does that process begin for you like when do you when do you are you constantly researching the fine work or are you just meeting artists just randomly like what's the what's the generation of it it's all that really like you know i've i've been in some situations where i have no intention to do any work i have no intention i'm gonna go to brunch with my friends or i'm gonna you know go to the park i'm not gonna look at any art and then the next thing i know i'm talking to someone on the bus who just so happens to make prints for posters you know then that conversation becomes well how did you learn how to print make and then they're telling me about this this community print studio or you know it's you're you're at a, a dinner and people are asking you what you do and they ask you about black art and then you start you say black and art and my i just start vomiting you know whatever <laughs> i've been working on and so you know i usually start with questions i have a question you know similar to octavia butler because octavia butler put it the best she says i have questions about life and about the world mm -hmm. and I start writing to answer my own questions, to explore things that don't necessarily have a ready-made response or an answer. Uh, and so that's kind of how my shows start. I have a question about living, about life, about people, and then the artists and the, and the, the theoretical frameworks come later. And so as you're talking, like, how do you know the moment in which you figure like this, this is something? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Because I'm sure you talk to a lot of artists and, and you're not working with everybody, right? So how are you being, yeah. being selective about that process? Well, I have, so as an individual, not as the objective curator or historian, but as an individual, I have biases. Like there are things that I look for. I love craft, um, textile work, woodwork, uh, printmaking, anything that involves various kinds of techniques and training mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily taught just in academia. Um, I'm very, very attracted to because that's the way I was raised. I was raised with people who learned how to fix cars by fixing cars um, <laughs> and people who learn how to fix hair by fixing hair. And, you know, of course, grandmothers and great grandmothers who sew and who cook. And so for me, it's that it's that craft and that technique and that style that comes with doing things your way that I look for. Um, and we could go all the way from sewing a quilt to the traditions of, of abstraction, black abstraction. We could talk about black people just expressing themselves, you know, finding the, the jazz in the classical music, finding where to break things apart in order to make space to express themselves. And I think that inkling most curators can see in almost any maker. So I don't want to put a hierarchical thing on it. It's not a person who went to a particular school or right. a person who does, you know, says a particular magic elevator pitch. It's a spark that a lot of people can see, but it's if our sparks touch that really matters. You know, you right. are working on something that touches on something I'm working on and together we can create something in a space, you know? Yeah. And that kind of spark and connection can kind of ruminate in the background a little bit and like it'll pick up when it's time to pick up like when you when you're finally laying out these ideas for a show i'm assuming that you just reach back and hey remember that one guy that was 
doing that thing matches per- perfectly with this and so on and so forth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have Excel sheets full of artists I've met. And I mean, full of artists I've met, be it on press trips or on the bus or, you know, wherever I am, who I'm like, oh, that person is interested in water. Subject mm, title, water, right? water, link to website. Like when you're talking to a curator or anybody, I, you know, I'd say this to any artist, when you're talking to somebody, you never know the impact that you can have talking to somebody. And there are artists who I know I want to work with that I will be trying to work with and trying to find the funding and space for, for my entire life. Mm-hmm. And there are artists who just blow into your life, blow into your pocket, you know, and, and you get the opportunity to work with them right away. But those slow simmer shows, big shows too, you know, when people have been working on a show for years and years, it's because they had that conversation on the bus and they did that initial studio visit and that spark lit up, but there was no money, you know, or there was no right, space. Right. So you got to, you got to let it cook. And the longer it cooks, the, the sweeter and the the more savory it is. So I think I, I talk to artists a lot about that, especially younger artists when they're trying to get in and they're wondering how did they make things work? How did they get into museums or get into this show or meet this thing and that thing? And I do in what you're saying kind of reinforces what I tell them. I tell them to focus on the work, like make the work, mm-hmm. have it available, stay committed to your process along the way. And because uh, uh, you just described a lot of things have to line up in order for something to happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you talk about funding, you talk about time, you talk about space, uh, even talking about the kinds of work that's being created. Like if it's even enough, can you be paired with somebody? Like, like it's so much other stuff that's beyond your control. What you can control is what you make and how you spend your time and what you're doing with it. And, and just continue to stay focused on that part of it and let, you know, people like you do your thing. Yeah. You know, I, I firmly believe there's a curator for every artist <laughs> or there's an institution for every type of art. Mm-hmm. But um, I also believe like, and this is a personal thing, but if you're making art for some kind of validation, you may always be dissatisfied. Even if you get the big shows and the mm. retrospectives right. and the books, you know, if you're looking for some kind of outside validation, right. Um, especially from an art world that is so hierarchical, so patriarchal, so steeped in white supremacy, like you, you are always going to be disappointed in some way. If you're, if you're making make, because you have something to say, you have something to express, you have a skill you want to use, make, because you have, you, you have to express yourself and the right people will gravitate toward you, you know, especially if you're good, especially if you're good at what you do, especially if you're interesting, especially if, you know, you're doing something that that isn't the hot thing right now. Right. Somebody's going to see that and they're going to try to make it the hot thing if they think that's hot. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's it's a long game. It's a really long game. And you have to know who your audience is, because I lived in Atlanta for a good minute and people are, are working toward different audiences. Some people want a national audience. Some people want an international audience. Some people cared about the West end and some people care about the South, you know, you got to know who you're catering to. Yeah. Nah, that's, that's super real. So a lot of your projects, like, are you seeking out people or are they coming to you? How does that relationship work? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I think I'm constantly looking for people. Um, specifically because like I said, I have a question I got to ask. I have a question that's gnawing at me. I'm, in the archive or I'm doing my research and I'm reading all these books and, and 
I want to have that conversation with someone who's also having that conversation. So, you know, I'll bring up Sadia Hartman at a dinner or at a lunch or just to see if the artist is on the same wavelength. I love Gloria Anzaldúa. I read her constantly. The Souls of Black Folk is a cornerstone in my scholarship. Mm -hmm. Like I, any of these people who are just on the same wave, I'm going to, I'm going to probably write your name down. I'm probably going to come, you know, find you at some point or try to continue the conversation. You know, and I and I'm I'm independent. I'm an independent curator. I'm in school and I write, but I don't have an institution to just pop up shows in. So for me, it's it's a lot about maintaining the relationship until I do have that space and that and that funding to be able to do the work, the justice it deserves. And that would be my next question was the the interface between you and the institutions. I mean, I've seen you uh, just in your list of shows on your CV. You got uh the Zuckerman Museum, Atlanta Contemporary, uh, the Woodmere Art Museum in Philly, like all these different places. How do you start to build those connections? You know, that's that's a hard question. The Zuckerman show was done uh, thanks to Dr. Marita Poole, Sarah Higgins, who's in, the editor at Art Papers right now, Teresa Bromlett Reeves. Um, they started a fellowship, my colleague in Zinga Simmons, who's now at Duke in the art history department, um, that gave us the opportunity to break into the field and they, they gave us the opportunity to curate a show. And I, I knew, you know, I wanted to do a textile show because of what I said, my foremothers worked with textiles. And I, I said, I have to work with some kind of weaver, sewer, you know, something. And so just like I said, I started my list and I'm talking to Don Williams Boyd and, you know, like I'm talking yeah. to everybody yeah. I could think of because I also knew I wanted to work with an Atlanta artist. And so by the time I met Zephora, you know, it was kismet. I knew, you know, this is who I wanted to work with. And the Zuckerman had a previous relationship with Zephora. And so the show just popped off well in that way. The contemporary reached out to me to co-curate the biennial with Jordan Americani. And again, I knew I wanted to work with Atlanta-based artists and I wanted to work with early career artists. And they agreed and, and were supportive and gave me a lot of space. You know, I got to work with Daniel Detweiler. I got to work with Adam Forrester, Artemis Jenkins and Shane Deadman. And, and we put together a really interesting show showing some of the artists. My mission with that was to kind of show some of the artists that I ran into in my two years in Atlanta that didn't get enough space, in my own personal opinion. Right. Um, and that was a list that list started with like 200 artists and whittled its way down to 50 artists and whittled its way down to 20 artists. And then it got to, to six artists and then I had to drop two. So, you know, it's, it's always in process. The brain is always in process. Uh, and then the show at the Woodmere, I actually agreed to do that show uh, to write that catalog essay for it. And what I ended up getting was a, ser a set of ephemera from this black man who had died. He died in 2013 his name is Roland Ayers and he didn't really, he didn't, he wasn't famous in his lifetime. And you can tell going through, they gifted me his dream journals, his, his books, his, his, his lesson plans from when he was teaching. You could kind of tell there was a point in the seventies where he knew here in Philadelphia, he was not going to be it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he was, he had his own shows in his living room 
and mm. sold work that way. But he also just gave work away. Interviewing people in Philadelphia, somebody said they had one of his drawings in his in their bathroom, just wow. in a frame in their bathroom, you know. And of course, as a curator, I'm like the the steam, <laughs> like we gotta <laughs> we gotta get that out of there. Yeah. But <laughs> don't um, do that. yeah, don't do that. Yeah, but it's it's one you never know the impact people have. But I that man was so prolific. His mm-hmm. drawings, surreal pen and ink drawings gorgeous he did some prints as well um that i had to do more and so i was like well let me help you select the works and let me you know let me show up to install and let me do them by the end of it i was i curated the show all because i I just couldn't let this institution i couldn't let this institution not have my personal black perspective on this black male artist Mm -hmm. um, who was no longer with us and i think if you're thinking about curatorial labor, the long durée or the the harvest that I'm talking about, a lot of the work is an investment that feeds us. You know, I think my work is very fruitful for me. It it, it helps me grow. It makes me feel fulfilled. But it's also a, a almost like a compulsion. You know, kind of like being an artist. You can't just you just can't have artists out here unrecognized. And some curators spend their entire lives trying to make sure that their artists get their due, especially when they're educators, because you never know the impact that that artist as an educator had on the scores of artists that are out here right now with varying levels of of success. And so he was an educator. He was a black man interested in the surreal. He was mining his own dreams and trying to come to terms with his attraction to white women through his work, like all of these interesting things I'd never seen before from a black male artist of that time you know he was born in the 30s i had to i had to write i had to i had to get my hands all in it and so um i kind of pushed my way into that show (laughs) (laughs) it was called your name man that's all it was (laughs) that's a great way to put it that's nice (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm I'm gonna jump back to uh to four for camille thomas uh, who show Lumen Chaos? Thompson. Thompson, I'm sorry, Thompson. Uh, who show Lumen Chaos that you curated? Uh, tell me a little bit about that show because I do remember this show, like being around. Is and I love DeFore's work. It's really, really amazing. I I do too. I, when I tell you I'm a huge fan, DeFore is my whole heart. Like we met during a studio visit, um, and I had lost a great grandparent and a grandparent um, in subsequent years. And something she had said about cyclical return, you know, she had mentioned that she kind of works through this idea of the Ouroboros, this old Egyptian Roman, it's actually global symbol of the snake eating its own tail, right? It's Mm -hmm. the idea that things will return back to where they came from, but also at that point where they return, they can be transformed into nutrients, you know, that kind of, that idea of reclamation and and transformation and growth that comes from a a closed circuit, which this earth is like, we only have so many resources we can't do with more than what we got. And so I was thinking about the loss of some loved ones, but I was also thinking about materials and how we are in this moment of ecological disaster, right? Um, The Anthropocene as some people call it. And Zephora was literally working with found material and thinking about the same thing. You know, she was at the Loom beautiful studio in her home at the time, and she just wanted to talk about making something out of nothing, which 
to me immediately echoes throughout my whole life. Right. You know, when something just taps on your, your funny bone and it vibrates. Yeah. And then you can't sit still. And that was that was kind of what it was. So a group show that I had was formulating in my mind was immediately a solo show. I was like, this woman needs space. This woman needs my money. Like, how much money do I have <laughs> in my budget? How much can I give to this woman? And and how can, how big of a book can I give her so that she has the time and the space and the resources to continue producing the amazing work that she produces. And I'm very proud to say that we were able to commission five people. And I was ambitious. I was like, Zephorus, it's a huge gallery. I don't know if you've been to the Zuckerman, yeah. um, but she had the whole back gallery. And I was like, it's a huge gallery. Why don't we make 75% new work, 25% old work? And she was like, yeah. And <laughs> a week later, I was like, maybe 50, you know, and she was like, yeah. And then we worked, we whittled it all the way down. <laughs> to, <laughs> we got five new works, you know, and she was able to, to do documentation. There's a lot on YouTube of her just explaining her practice, explaining why it was relevant to the, the current moment, explaining where she was trained, her interest in materials, her philosophical um spiritual beliefs and it was just a beautiful all-encompassing kind of show um that really you, you to go back to all scholarship being all the across different media like it was really her and i was just kind of a megaphone and a and a a conduit for the things that she was trying to say because it matched some of the things that i wanted to say and when i tell you an artist it's seeing an artist throw themselves into their work is I, I watched her at the loom. I watched her finding materials. We were there when we photographed the work and unfurled the work, like the, 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 so much of herself went into that work in that show. And I'm so sad that it closed because of COVID yeah. halfway through. Um, but you know, we still had the artists talk with Krista Clark and, and Zynga Simmons. And we still had some programming, some elementary school kids came in there and, called the work ugly like we got we got a, enough of the experience of of having had the show and the book the book exists and the book is beautiful so um yeah it was it was a great experience yeah i i, I would imagine that makes your job as a curator much easier when you're able to uh believe in it so much because that's what I, I hear in your voice as you describe it like how much you were connected to what was happening in the process and going through the things and whittling stuff down. Like it feels like a, a, a good memory for you. Oh, absolutely. And that's the, that's the privilege of a fellowship is that I didn't have to deal with institutional things like applying for my budget. I was just told what my budget was, you know, I didn't have to fight the board or deal with donors because it was a fellowship. I got to really focus um, and be cultivated as a fellow doing this show and so i that's it's every curator's dream to work directly with their artists or their archives if they're no longer living to to spend all that time and it's a you know sometimes you don't have that time or the resources or the artist didn't leave you anything behind and mm. so to to have my first big show with an artist who is so passionate and so involved and so willing to let me watch them work because some artists they like to lock the door and you, you see it when it's done she let me in the room and so absolutely wonderful experience absolutely was this the tina dunkley fellowship it was yeah it was no i love i love tina dunkley she's a great i used to help her make prints and stuff but 
Oh yeah. yeah. So tell me, tell me about how the how working in that fellowship might have changed your mind about what you were doing too, because it seemed like a great opportunity. It was very special and very unique. And I'm and you know life is very funny. I, I'm not an art historian. I went to undergrad and got a degree in English and African American studies and creative writing. Then I got my master's in American studies and now I'm getting my PhD in a history program, right? Like I'm not an art historian. I didn't grow up with traditional artists in my household. I didn't grow up, you know, I'm from Waterloo, Iowa. We have one cultural center and that's where you have your retirement party. That's where you have your baby shower. <laughs> that's where the city has yeah. town halls. Like it's, it's not a, we do weddings. A pantheon <laughs> of art. Right. They do it all. Yeah. Caterers got the chicken. Everything is there. Everything you need. Yeah. And it's so, like lounge, um, yeah. When I decided that it was museums for me, I needed the practical experience. I had curated at the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis with Kelly Schindler, um, and we got to put together this beautiful, and I don't know if you saw the Amy Sherrill show um, at Spelman, but that show yeah, originated yeah. at CAM um, with Lisa Melandry, who is the director, who is still the director. That research, I believe, was happening while I was there. So. It, it's an, an amazing institution, no collection, just a cement box that you could literally just put up a show. It was so responsive and so nimble. Um, and I loved it. I had an amazing experience. I was like, it's art museums for me. That's what I'm doing. Modern and contemporary American art. Got it. You know, um, <laughs> but I didn't have art experience. And of course, at this time, I'm 25, 26. I'm not connected to anybody at all. I lived in one of those cities where it was hard for you to to get a job in the field that you wanted if you were from there. Um, and so I had to leave and I, I looked for a bunch of different fellowships. And the reason I have so much praise for Dr. Marita Poole, Clark Atlanta's art museum, you know, Diamond Mason is there too. Yeah. The reason I have so much love for them is because Dr. Marita Poole said, it's not going to be a postdoctoral, so you do not have to have your doctorate. You don't have to have a master's. If you have passion, you can come right into this field and get some experience. She also said, you don't have to be an art historian because she's trained as an anthropologist. Um, she understands that there are so many people and so many angles to approaching art. And so she took my American studies, English, African-American studies degrees and said, you can do something with our collection. You can be in here. Um, and Nzinga came in with a bachelor's, so we were staggered education wise and were able to support each other in those kinds of ways when looking at PhD programs, right? And, you know, to be named after Tina Dunkley and to be, to get your foregrounding in an HBCU's collection that has struggled to survive historically, mm -hmm. it gives you one, a real appreciation for the, the history of black art in this country, in the South. Um, it gives you an appreciation for the individual people like Tina Dunkley, who make sure that these collections are preserved until they can be institutionally protected. Sometimes it's just it's just one person and a sword out here fighting. Sometimes it's just that one person. And, you know, the collection, the history of Clark Atlanta's art museum, the Atlanta annuals didn't happen so long ago. But it's it's crazy how amnesia sets in so fast. You forget how prominent prominent. Uh, space was or places were and people forget and things happen and universities blend together and then all you know our art collection is in a basement and I got to spend a lot of time in that basement same as Tina Dunkley going through all those materials going through everything that had been amassed 
and it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So yeah, I, I, that, that on top of everything else was just it was an I can't can't talk about it positively enough. Oh yeah, and I think that why well, there's a <laughs> lot of stories of people like Tina that went in and and literally saved <laughs> millions of dollars uh, worth of art that was just uh, being uncared for. You know, man, and unconsidered in terms of value and even cultural relevance uh, to what was going on. So, I, you know, that's one of the stories that definitely need to be told. Big shout out to Dr. Poole. I love Dr. Poole. Uh, she's at Tulane oh. now. Uh, um, so, yeah, she's doing big things. So definitely appreciate her. I going yes. to switch to your writing a little bit. Okay. And so when you I'm actually this when you when you have your curator hat and your writing hat, how close together are those two things? in terms of how you look at your practice? Uh, they're inseparable, one. I would say any good curator is probably a good writer. It's hard to be, it's hard to translate, or let me say it this way. A good curator is probably a good translator because you have to be able to take whatever the artist is thinking or feeling and put it into, condense it down to a, a tombstone. You know what I mean? Like you have to be able to mm -hmm. hear some, you know, some artists are very good at, at explaining their own work, but that's a, re a recently new thing. You know, like before artists would just say whatever, and then the curator <laughs> would have to come in and say, well, this is a very important technique. You know, this is something that has been passed down, right. you know, since their family was in West Africa. You, 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 but now artists are, are professionalizing in ways that are making curator's job's easier, but I would say any curator is a, is a probably at least a decent writer. A lot of the work is writing because we're writing art history. We're writing the histories, catalog essays, tombstones, press releases, all of that are usually written by a curator, a curator assistant, a fellow, or an intern. So um, as a writer, you know, and sometimes I say I'm an art journalist, but as an art writer, uh, I'm thinking curatorially about the landscapes of, of discourse happening right now. So how I know I'm going to write about a show is similar to the way that I know that I'm going to want to work with an artist in the future. I walk into a show and I'm like, oh, something something is happening here. Mm -hmm. Something important and significant is happening here. Um, and I, it must be other people have to know what this is, you know, and it's you go into a studio visit. Uh, and I say, oh, my God, this print is fantastic. Like this is this is doing something that needs to be talked about. Then I'm, I'm the mechanics, the gears are rolling to make a show. Same thing when I walk into an exhibition and I think, oh, there's something magical happening in this space. And sometimes, you know, it's not the, the work. Sometimes it's the curation. Sometimes I'm like, oh, there's a, a powerful curator at work behind this or a team of curators or a preparator, even a fabricator. There's a fabricator behind this killing it. <laughs> and so I got to write about this show so they get their due, you know, yeah. and of course, we don't tend to cite those people, but know that you are in my heart and in my mind when I write my reviews that can only be 700 to 900 words. <laughs> <laughs> This is Jamel Wright Sr., abstract artist, living in Atlanta, GA. You're listening to Studio Noise. Yeah, I was talking about one of your writings in particular. I want to go into it because I thought it was uh, uh, extremely well written, uh, especially in terms of how you were describing the work. I'm talking about the one you wrote about the Dirty South 
uh, showed uh, uh-huh. the, the title of the article, A Cosmos of Southern Black Expression, the Dirty South at the Virginia Museum of Fine Art. Uh, you wrote this for Art in America. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about going into that show and kind of how it manifested in the language that you use to describe it. Cause I thought, I thought in all of your writing, you do an exceptional job of describing not the, not just the context of the piece, but the experience of the piece as you go through it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for reading my work. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you think you write something and it, it gets put out there and it's just out in a vacuum, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I'm sending things to my mom and my friends. Like, did you read this? What do you What do you think? Um, I say, and, and you never know how an artist. I say, I say, same thing about this podcast, man. I I make episodes just sit them out there, man. I hope somebody, <laughs> hope it lands somewhere Some, with somebody. Somebody, and you know what? Maybe not today or tomorrow, but yeah. somebody's gonna go because you're creating an archive too, of thought and conversation and and discourse and debate. Like, it's important. It's important work. Especially in Atlanta, especially with the the networks that you've created through your show, um, so kudos to you as well for the work that you're doing and Appreciate keeping it. it going. Yeah, um, the Dirty South, I think, and I'm going to say this, and I don't know if I'll be able to say it as well as I said it the other night. I was with a group of colleagues and friends, and I said the Dirty South is the most important show of this century so far. Mm. It, and I, I was I've been drinking, of course, so I, of course I was able to just it rolled right off my tongue in this beautiful proclamation of how significant that show is and how genius Valerie Castle Oliver, the curator, is. Um, first off, you walk into that show, and the first thing you see in the atrium is a Cadillac. Never in my Negro life have I walked into a museum that wasn't an automobile museum and saw a Cadillac with huge speakers, trunk popped open, rim, you know, like it was just like, oh, I'm at a car show. Mm. It's it's a Sunday night car show, you know, like, and, and it was this kind of Venn diagram of my world. Um, I think first off, any curator of color from a marginalized identity who can make new space out of the traditional encyclopedic museum, turn it and transform it into something where their community feels like they belong. That's a, that's an amazing feat. And for Valerie Castle Oliver to put that Cadillac in the, in the atrium, not even in the show, not even in the space, she put it right when everybody who comes into that museum is seeing the Cadillac. Yeah. That's that's capital B black right there. (laughs) And, and then it's sound, right. And this is the intention of the show. You see the Cadillac, and then you hear Paul Stephen Benjamin's work from the lower atrium. And so it's this, it's calling you throughout the entire, throughout the entire museum. There's a, a chapel for, I think it's the Daughters of the Confederacy or the Ladies of the Confederacy or something like that. They have a chapel on the campus of the museum. This is Richmond, right? So there's that Confederate history, that, um, that old South history there that's the the, uh, the Kehinde Wiley's Rumors of War is right on that campus. This chapel has a sound installation that pulls you in. It, it's, she, she really took over that whole campus and transformed it into a place for conversation. And she did it with rap at the forefront, with music, with sound, but specifically with hip hop culture at the forefront. And it really felt like in all of these ways we've been talking about hip hop being pop music and and the significance of, of black voices in American music. Like it really felt like the proclamation that hip hop is part of the lineage and the genealogy of black expression that is just as valuable as jazz or ragtime or 
quilting or dance, you know, it, it, Catherine Dunham, all of this, it put it in that lineage in a way that solidified it for me. And I'm sure for very many viewers that this is, this is, this is us and it's important and it needs to be uh, not literally, but it needs to be on the pedestal in the same way that these other art forms are and look at where they come from. And so you walk into the space and the first thing that you see is this beautiful form of Beverly, Beverly Buchanan's like rock formations. Then it's films. Then in, to bring up Atlanta artists, um, Michi Mako's work is right in that first gallery. Yeah. Some, it's called Summer, I believe, and it's gorgeous, gorgeous. There's a work from Clark Atlanta in the first gallery. I can't remember which one, but I remember reading the wall label and thinking like, oh, my God, even here, even here, because, you know, people say whatever they want to say about Clark Atlanta University Art Museum. But I tell you, when you need a loan, there's <laughs> no better place. Yeah, no better place. I, I travel an awful lot for the work I do. And any big, you know, survey esque black show usually has a work from Clark Atlanta in it. That's just just to re up on how significant that collection is and how important it is to black art in general. But um, I, I could I could really I could talk for hours about this show. I really could. <laughs> but she did something very significant and she didn't exceptionalize it. She didn't. It, she didn't put respectability on it. Sheila Pre Bright's in that show. Oh, my goodness. There's so many good artists in that show. And so many artists from the South who do work and live in the South and who feed the South. And you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it was made by someone who, you know, has lived in the South and who cares. Right. Um, someone who is a, an intense researcher, someone who is thoughtful, someone who is spiritual. You could see all of this just in the thoughtful placement of the work, just in the ways that the work speak to each other, just in the ways that they're thinking about building up blackness but also the the realities of blackness and uh it's just just a, a a very important show if and it's still touring so for anybody who's listening to this please go see that show i really i really argue that it is the most important show to come out in the u.s this century so far oh i got to put this on my list then like i <laughs> i already knew i wanted to see it it's like yo i gotta move it up the list a little bit like yeah like you, you have yeah, one line. It's in important. There. You have one line in the interview said, "Black culture is not produced in a vacuum." Tell me about that idea a little bit more, because you're relating a lot of things and kind of. And I love the ability of some people to be able to take all these different histories and explain the context of it, right? Because the context is, can be forgotten sometimes in a series of events. But you being able to reference the jazz to the the hip hop and and so on and so forth as you go along. Tell me a little bit about that idea. Yeah. Uh, well, have you ever, first I'll start by saying, because I'll go way back to the thought, but um, have you ever read In Search of Our Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker? The essay, there's a book, but there's a specific essay. Not that I can remember. Okay, so anybody who's listening, please go read that essay. It's it's a something you already know. Same it's name, something you already time. know. In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. So what it, what it is, is it's an an article where she's basically saying who knows how many of our foremothers and fathers were artists, mm. but because of the structures of, of political, economic, social oppression that they lived under, those are not the terms that they could use to call themselves, title themselves, cloak mm -hmm. themselves in. And she references her mother's garden literally as a space of expression and creation. 
she's every every season she's picking the colors she's she's painting a tableau with the earth right um and that applies to our fathers who are barbers and our our uncles who are mechanics and our you know on and on and uh, architects and you know people who who are doing the work but don't have the certification people who are doing the work but maybe they don't work for the big architectural firm or the big you know whatever firm but they do the work anyway and they do it with pride and with skill and how that influences us today when we have the privilege to say i, I am an artist when we have the space and the protection that they for their sacrifices have made that space for you in the moment right now to say i am an artist i am expressing myself i'm going to do this as a vocation and i should be respected for it right and so the idea that black art isn't created in a vacuum is kind of built around the understanding that the the black art world has had to exist separate from other various other art forms primarily the white art historic western canon and so you have generations and generations of artists henry Oswa tanner and you know you could go as far back as you as you can please and think about how those artists were making work in black spaces and you personally could probably go back in your own life and think about all the artists who you'd never see in a book right. but whose work you saw you know in your school library or you know um i think of louis delsart i saw his work in a in a book when i was a kid before i knew what i was looking at you know what i mean yeah, like you yeah. never know who's influencing you yeah um and sometimes, you know, you're just stirring a pot for your grandma and the colors, the colors and the textures become the abstraction that color your canvas. And so it's, it's really about understanding that our lives, not just, not just oppression, you know, not just the canon, but our lives shape the aesthetic of black art, every part of it, the music and the, and, um, the Dirty South expresses this, articulates this beautifully, but it's like, every form of expert how women dress on sunday you know um, we call s church hats crowns we live in a different world with a different vocabulary um be it in the south be it in the north be you black you know or an african african-american or a caribbean african-american we we come with a, a, a language and an aesthetic and traditions and histories that will never be put in books right. but when you get to your canvas or your your clay or your mold or your you know whatever your materials are and you begin to piece that work together you'll start to see the traces of all of those things sorry i'm in i'm in west philadelphia nah, i don't know if you good. can hear all that yeah it's all good yeah keep it going that's the noise right there that's studio <laughs> that's that was an amen okay <laughs> but yeah that's all that means it's like you can't you can't sit and try to analyze black art without thinking about black experience right you just can't do it and when people talk about having the range which is something my colleagues and i talk about all the time there are some things i do not have the range to write about things i haven't studied things i haven't experienced and so i'm not going to write about them but people try all the time to, to encapsulate blackness in text that's something i got that's the range i got and so that's <laughs> that's, that's what i write about yeah. and i try to think about it not in a in a in a pigeonhole kind of way, I try to think of it as something that is alive and expansive and growing and changing and beautiful and ugly and for everything that blackness is, everything that being an American is. Nah, that's exactly how you should think about it. I love that. 
<laughs> yeah, keep keep doing that one, brother. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, talk a little I'm bit. Trying. About, yeah, talk a little bit about um, your reviews. Like when you are like going to actually review a show, do you know you're reviewing it beforehand before you walk in? Sometimes, 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 okay. sometimes, sometimes, sometimes shows are real bad <laughs> and, <laughs> and not bad. Like the work is bad, but bad, like poorly put together. You know, right. you think of something, you think why that title that diminishes the work, <laughs> right? Why that lighting, why that color that makes the work look ashy, you know, like the, it's not necessarily <laughs> about the artist. Sometimes it's about the way that the the work is put together. And I'm, equitable in the way that I do not judge shows based on the resources that the institution has. So I don't go into a space and say, you had two light bulbs out. I don't do that. Um, But what I will do is I'll say, you know, you made choices that diminished this work. This work is, you know, you see a Sam Gilliam and they're strung up on the walls, hanging from the ceilings. So, you you know, you you put it flat against the wall for what? Mm -hmm. What was that choice? You know, why, why stifle the work in that way? Yeah. Um, or you got a room full of sound bleed and it's like, I can't hear, there's no integrity to any of these video works because all the sounds blend together. Is that purposeful or are you just made a choice? And so there's structural things like that. Sometimes the work conceptually isn't there. Sometimes the work conceptually doesn't match what the curator is saying. And that happens a lot. Sometimes you got a great curator and a great artist and they're not actually talking to each other. One is using the other for whatever reason. And it's, it becomes apparent in the gallery space or the writing. And so usually when I have something bad to say, it's usually conceptual. I'll usually say something like conceptually, you said this and that's racist. That's, that's my, (laughs) my saved text in my draft folder. But, um, and sometimes I just, like I said earlier, like I go to a show and I say, Oh my God, this is so significant. This is so important. Even, you know, I, I don't review every show that I love. One, because it, the process is you have to pitch it and somebody has to accept that pitch. Mm-hmm. And that place that accepts your pitch has to have the budget to pay you. Um, there's a there's a whole line of, of fences in that way, borders and boundaries. But it's also like sometimes you don't need to because the work speaks for itself. I think that it's it's a it's intuitive for me. Sometimes I have something to say, you know, I went and saw a show in L.A. and I had so many questions and I thought if I if I had the time, I would review this because I think that other people are having the same questions mm-hmm. I'm having. Mm-hmm. And and maybe I could start a public a public dialogue, which is really what reviews are for. Right. It's not just about promoting the show. It's not an advertisement. Right. It's about creating conversation around the work. And hopefully, hopefully engaging the public in the same concepts that the artists or the institution are are working through. So other than the Dirty South, what was kind of one of your favorite experiences going in to review a show? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, well, I just reviewed for Art in America, Basira Khan's show at the Brooklyn Museum. Mm. That show is so good. So, so good. It's a it's a the beautiful trifecta of like. You have an artist who is so skilled at the various media they work in. You have plastics and technology. You have textile and fabric. You have performance and speech. Material manipulation is ridiculous. Everything, and this is a line I couldn't fit into the review, but 
every almost every work in that show is reflective mm. and that reflective quality shields the figure a lot of times that is being depicted in the art shields the pattern that's being depicted in the work but implicates the viewer you are now a part of the art you are part of the spectacle and behind all of these layers of, of beauty is someone protecting themselves it's so significant it's so poignant Basira Khan killed it with that show. I hope that show gets a million reviews. I hope they win some awards. <laughs> like, hands down, amazing. Um, let me think. Let me think. I'm trying to think of some Atlanta ones because I had a good time in Atlanta reviewing shows. Krista Clark's work always. Krista Clark at Mocha yeah. GA was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I saw Prospect, um, and I just recently wrote a review for Art Papers um, on Malcolm Peacock's performance. That performance shook me. Um, and I actually couldn't get it out of myself until I wrote about it. Wow. Um, which is kind of how, you know, that just shows you how Im- Im- impactful the art is. It can, it can live in you for a long time. And his work a hundred percent is now a part of my DNA. Like I feel like I writing that review was like throwing up. Wow. It was so hard. <laughs> 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 it was not a it, it's a beautiful performance, but it was it was emotionally taxing. Wow. Again, implicating me, the the participant. I, I had to put some of myself in that work, and that was work. <laughs> <laughs> and where where did, where does that come from from you? Like where does this kind of love and appreciation and the want to understand the art that you're looking at? Where does that come from for you? Hmm. You know, I, I would probably say it comes from me understanding what a struggle it is to be understood. Mm. I hate being misunderstood. You know, that's probably why I write. I hate not being I don't like I hate non-clear communication. And I feel like a lot of artists are people who are talking. They're just there. You know, I, and I'll put it a different way. When I was trying to decide between history museums, libraries and art museums, um, I was like, well, they do different things. They have, they're obviously they do different things, but how they approach solving a problem or even engaging a problem, engaging a conversation is different. A history museum engages it 10 years later. You know, it's not history of us as 10 years old. Right. Um, A library, you know, they're working with some of everybody, which I love, you know, you're going to see the poorest to the richest every age, um, you're going to be directly engaging with the the community and you're curating a collection of books. Right. But the books are all based on your budgets and, and it depends on who reads them. You know, people check out books all the time and they sit in their backseat of their car getting sun faded until it's time to turn them back in. And so the turnaround for validation and, and endorphins wasn't fast enough. But when I interned at the Contemporary Art Museum, St. Louis, immediately any question we had artists were responding and responding with so much emotion and responding across media so it wasn't just them talking to me it was them saying well let me show you pulls out fabric fabricates something you know what i mean like oh you know like well let me tell you about you know the symbol of the eagle not you know not for me as an american but for me as an indigenous american like let me show you what that means for me um, and then, you know, you go into these huge, I mean, it's, it's like sitting at the table with people who are so generous with 
what they're with the questions they have. There's no absolute answers. A lot of artists are just asking questions and asking you to think along with them and to contribute and to participate, you know. And so it's important for me to to make sure that that conversation continue. I want to be a part of that dialogue. I want to facilitate that conversation. I want people to be heard. And so when I go into an art space and somebody's talking to me, I'm going to I'm going to speak back. Yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> I I love hearing that part of it because I'm on the other side where I am constantly thinking about how to channel my emotion, my view of the world into some kind of visual art, right? Now, like how can I create it? How can I visually represent all of the stuff that's feeling inside because I'm locking into the humanity that's trying to connect all of us that you, it has somebody out there that it can't connect with. And so you're the person, right? <laughs> like you, like you, you, like what you just described is what the ultimate hope of all artists making anything is that I'm saying something and then somebody hears it. Does that make sense? Like, like whenever that mm-hmm. exchange happens, it can happen over 50 years. You know, I still look back at Harlem Renaissance work or, you know, uh, Doc's Thrash or anything like that. And, yeah. and I'm still connected with it over time with people that I would never, never had the opportunity to ever think about meeting. Right. That that died 50 years before I was born. And yeah. the, the, the message is still there. The resonance is still there. That is the purpose of why I'm making stuff to make this kind of, uh, you know, the world is like a bathroom wall. Like I was here. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, Stephen King and in, in his in one of his memoirs, I think he wrote a book on writing. He says, yeah, he did. Writing is just telepathy. Mm. All I'm doing is I'm putting my thoughts in a place for you to be to think about them later. You know, so it's like it's it's all of that. It's all of that. And it's so intimate if you get into it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody won't get it. Like my kids, my kids don't get it. They just walk by, but that's okay. I don't, you know, going back to In Search of My Mother's Gardens, you never know. That's you true. You never, that's never, true. never know. You know, I was talking to Jamel uh, Wright Sr. Um, about, I interviewed him a long time ago for Arts, and, Arts ATL. And he said, when grown folks started talking and having their grown folks talk, they would send me outside and I would be stuck outside on the porch watching the horizon. And when those shapes and those forms began to blend, it became abstraction for me. Mm. And now Jamel is an abstract artist. You know, maybe your kids don't become artists, but, you know, whatever they become, they might be taking some of those shapes and forms, those images, those questions, those colors to whatever they're doing and becoming well-rounded people. Yeah. Thoughtful people, you know? Yeah. I hope so. (laughs) As we go. But one more, one last thing I want to talk to you about before we get out of here. Uh, You wrote another article for art papers, uh, monumental figures. I love that. I love the, the thesis of it. And you were referencing another article says you will ponder whether figurative depictions of black people in monumental form could ever escape centuries of objectification of black people's bodies or racist depictions and visual culture. Uh, expound on that idea and talk about that, that whole um, paper for me a little bit. Okay. Okay. So you got into the deep, the deep meat of, yeah. <laughs> of a lot of the work that I do. Um, so it wasn't just one paper that I think you're referencing. It's a couple, I, I, and I'll, I'll name them. 
One is toward a monumental black body for art papers. Another one is monumental futures for art papers. And the kind of the last in a trilogy is a letter to my peers that was published in Monument Labs Bulletin. And all of them take on kind of the same question. We live in a time right now, and monuments are kind of my thing, right? So I've written a lot about Confederate monuments and Harriet Tubman monuments and Sojourner Truth. And I, I have this real issue with the idea of something socially, economically, structurally in the built environment happening to Black people. And then the solution being that we just put up a sculpture of a dead Black person. Mm. One, I have an issue with the idea of, of thinking that Harriet Tubman wanted her face all over the place like this. She's not here to ask. Nobody's asking Harriet Tubman if, they can, if we can use her body like this to make to make some kind of appeasement for a young black person being shot. Uh, in Monumental, in a letter to my peers, I talk about how between when I lived in Atlanta and when I returned to visit for the opening of the Atlanta Biennial, I had lived on MLK. A man was shot and died on my front porch. And then, you know, I left and now I'm suing my landlord, but that's another conversation. Oh, Lord. And... <laughs> And when I came back, they put a sculpture of MLK releasing a dove on the same street. What does that do? People are losing their homes. Yeah. People are losing their the 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 people are are that neighborhood is changing so fast I couldn't believe it. I and I was a black gentrifier, you know, I'm not from Atlanta, but I wanted to live where the black people were. And then I was living where the black people weren't going to be living for very much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and to me, that's that's the issue. That's the problem. We talk about the Beltline. We talk about um, I wrote an article for Arts ATL called Something Over Something Else about the Bearden Show. And that was really just me being upset at Atlanta because I feel like the idea of newness is so sexy that it just covers up old, old systemic issues. Right. And mm -hmm. so the idea of, of the black body, our bodies. And, you know, I'll make it personal. Being able to solve systemic issues isn't the case. We were brought here, if you're a descendant of chattel slavery, we were brought here as labor to fix an issue. They wanted to produce more than they could on their own. Right now we, we live in exist in a time where there are still issues and our bodies are still being thrown at them as if they are solving the real problem. The real problem is greed. You know, the real problem, you know, and I could I could go on about this forever. But in relation to the monuments, it's really thinking about, you know, what does a community want? What does a community need in the long run? And do we do we really need to keep appropriating Harriet Tubman's body? Is Harriet Tubman, it could be MLK. There's so many sculptures and streets named after MLK. Why is there nothing that depicts their ideology? Why is there nothing that depicts their theology or their their spirituality, their, the principles by which they lived, it's always their body. And their body gets put out of context. And then it becomes an, an, an object in which iconoclasm or destruction can happen. You can piss on it. You can spit on it. You can neglect it. It could fall apart. Why? When really all we wanted you to do was to bring the rent down. <laughs> you know, like it, I, I'm not a fan of yes. these big, pretty, shiny, golden sculptures to to distract me away. They don't distract me. 
they in fact they infuriate me and that's why i write the things that i write <laughs> but but i will say amanda williams who is a, a a woman artist out of chicago um is collaborating on a on a shirley chisholm monument and she's trained as an architect she went to cornell and you know she builds spaces she she thinks about dilapidation on a citywide scale not just a, a park or a neighborhood or a community and so they proposed you know they took proposals for this monument to shirley chisholm in new york um for and it's going to be in prospect park and something that she did was she compromised in the in a way that i think is beautiful you know she said people are going to want to see her face but I want something else. I want to create a space for people to gather in her name, mm. right? Because yeah. she was about being a we, not a me. Right. Which means if you know the the beliefs and the philosophies of the person, you know, she didn't want a sculpture of herself. <laughs> she didn't want that. She wanted a sculpture of her people, her community, her her beliefs. And so to honor that and to honor people's desire to want to see her face, they're creating, and I believe the construction is happening soon, a silhouette of her so when you look at the the it's more of a gate i guess i'm doing a terrible job it's not built yet i'm sorry y'all <laughs> but um when you come upon the park from far away you see the silhouette the iconic silhouette of her but when you get closer and closer it becomes a gate to the park so you can't tell it's her when you're up close you have to be looking at the park from far away. Mm -hmm. And symbolically, which is really what the, the name of the game is right now, we're talking, we're having a battle of symbols. Symbolically, that embodies the person in a way that is thoughtful and caring, still, you know, referencing her body, but it's a reference, not an appropriation. Right. And it's, it's beautiful. And I think that that's what I wanna see in the, that as a person, as an American citizen, black American citizen, I want to see people make thoughtful works of public art, not just taking my body, you know, toward a monumental black body says, do not let them turn me into a monument after they shoot me down on the street. Don't let them do that to me. You know, every time I see a sculpture of Harriet Tubman, I'm like, damn, we really let them do that. <laughs> <laughs> we really, we really did. We allowed that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's a battle of symbols. The game is a long game. It's a long game. You take down a sculpture of somebody and you replace it with somebody else with the same name. What's changed? Right. And that's a vague statement, but some people will know what I'm talking about. Um, so that's my answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. And I love thinking about those ideas in terms of how America loves to reappropriate stuff. Right. Is to take one yeah. thing that meant one thing, like like Martin Luther King, and turn them into a black Santa Claus, where they can whip them out whenever they feel like uh, proving their point for whatever particular time, and and get to completely ignore everything he was saying, <laughs> you and you and use him against you. Exactly. Yeah. It's like calm down, black person. Remember what MLK said. Exactly. Yeah. Why, Why are, are you burning <laughs> things down? I thought yeah. we were brothers. While they continue to pillage and and rape and. And gun you down the street, <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly and that. So, yeah. Exactly so that. It's all, so it's all like a, a game, and I love how you say the the figure of Harriet Tubman without thinking of what she was doing. Like think about what she was actually doing, and I love the Sir Shirley Chisholm um, monumental. Got to look that one up. But you know the the message of what she was doing is more powerful than her individual image, and so it is becoming a distortion of of the purpose of of these buildings. 
to continue yeah. to make a move without the appropriate other changes that will facilitate true change in the neighborhood. That's it. Nah, that's real, man. Hey, man, that, that's good stuff right there, man. I could talk to you all day long, man. I gotta bring you back. <laughs> gotta bring you back on the podcast. I think this because this is the kind of stuff, man. When we talk, two things want to do with this podcast: one, make the make an archive of contemporary black artists, right? Reach back and get some of these voices of even our elders, elders that have been making art and doing stuff for so long. But also have these kind of conversations where people can start to think about these events in in much bigger terms, like all the stuff that artists are talking about are much more complex and worthy of a bigger conversation than what we usually tend to give it or whether or not it's pretty or, you know, got the right colors mm-hmm. in it or whatnot. So I love this kind of That's stuff. It. Man. Or if it sells. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yo. Tell them where they can find you, man. Well, you know, if y'all need to reach me, you can find me on Instagram, TKSmith106. That's TKSmith106.com is my website and at, at gmail.com. And that's my email. That's what's up, man. TK Smith, yo, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Oh, thank you so much. I had a good time. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the bag. Big shout out to my man, TK Smith, coming on the podcast, blessing us with that good art talk. You know, I love it. Next week, we'll be back with more with the incredible, amazing, stupendous Latoya Hobbs right here on Studio Noise, coming back to the noise. (laughs) Yes. And all my artists out there, I want you to go listen to Black Radio 3. New music from Robert Glasper and friends. I just want you to vibe out, relax, relate, release the noise. We here, baby. We want to hear it. It's your boy, Jay Barber. It's the noise. I'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.